is Dr. Daniel Van Ingen with this week's Parenting Podcast. I'm really excited to be back. We have, uh, we're back to doing some parenting podcasts. I know we've gone through a lot over the last several months with the pandemic, but I am here with a, an interview. We're restarting the Parenting Doctor Series interviews, and I've got uh, just a treat, a great guy um, coming from Colorado. His name is Jen, Jed Hafer. Sorry. <laughs> His name is Jed Hafer. He's a great guy, and um, Jed is he's well-known comedian uh, in Colorado. He's a national speaker. Today, he's going to be speaking on emotional intelligence, de-escalation, and preventing anger from turning into violence. Jed is a longtime comedian, a longtime speaker for Love and Logic. Um, he's been a consultant for families and law enforcement, and I am so excited to have you back, Jed, uh, or not back, but here for the first time. I could tell that I've been out of it a little bit. I've already made two quick errors. <laughs> it's a great pleasure, man. We, uh, it feels like I've been on before because we've known each other for a long time, which is my great pleasure. Thank you. It's my honor to have you. And Jed, if you don't mind... Just for the audience, I want to give put in a little plug in for some of your work, just to give them some of your background, because you've done a lot of stuff. And I don't know how you've I been involved. Is that okay? That's great. I, I don't know how you've written 11 books, um, and I know that um, some of your books have been with, with your brother Todd Hafer, great team. Uh, That's Je- how I did it. I did it with my brother. That's how you write a lot of books, is you have a really smart brother who does all the editing and essentially all I have to do is the nouns and then he does all the verbs and all the other stuff. (laughs) Uh, Jed has uh, a book called Solitude, Finding Peace for the Stressed Out Soul. And as you know, you know, everyday work stress oftentimes has people looking for ways to relieve their anxiety and uh, whether it's the noise and chaos of crowded streets, bumper to bumper traffic, uh, or something as, as easy as getting a spot in the grocery line. So there's some great ideas in this book. So check it out, Solitude. And Jed's a longtime author. So I, I want to share some of the other uh, pieces, some of the other uh, works that Jed has done. Uh, a book called Shrink Your Stress in Five Steps. Five Simple Steps to Lower Stress and Enjoy Every Day. And also Jed has some fun books as a comedian, is a great background with a hilarious collection of stories. And Jed, you have this book that I was looking up. I haven't read it, but I want to read it. It's Snickers from the Front Pew, Confessions from <laughs> Two Preacher's Kids. That was our very first book my brother Todd and I did together. I was traveling as a stand-up comedian, and he was uh, an author. He was already an established author. And we just, it's all true stories that we made up about uh, being preacher's kids <laughs> and if yeah, if anybody who grew up in church you'll recognize these stories about potlucks and just all kinds of nonsense that we got into uh growing up as, as preacher's kids it's pretty funny that there's uh there's zero substance to it it's all silliness that's fun and i don't know how in 2006 you guys were pumping out the books but you had three books come out in 2016 i meant 2016 i mean that's that's a big time year for publishing. Uh, you have a great book. Yeah, you know, I have a lot of free time. <laughs> <laughs> the book Laugh a Lot 
your daily dose of wholesome humor. Uh, also another book called Wit and Wisdom for the Workplace, a little survival guide for life on the job. And then earlier that year, The Pocket Grandpa, Grandfatherly Wit and Wisdom at Your Fingertips. That one actually has some uh, some good tips in there. That one uh, is also sold through the Love and Logic Institute, and it has some some Love and Logic kind of ideas for grandpas or grandmas. We uh, we figured grandma would buy it for grandpa. The trick is that my brother worked for Hallmark for years, and so he's really good at turning out these kind of little little gift books. A lot of them are meant to you know somebody, especially teachers, uh, when you don't know what to get then there's only so many applebee's gift cards you can give somebody uh then we, we we wanted these books to be good gifts that people could give to their favorite teacher or boss or whoever and jed is a longtime speaker and um i also want to highlight uh an audio piece love and logic in tough situations when you feel like you're at the end of your rope and that's a streaming audio uh also cd old school and if, yeah, you, if you're old school, you can get the CD. Yeah, and it, you can just Google Love and Logic in Tough Situations, and uh, loveandlogic.com comes up. So that's a, another great resource that's going to add a lot of value to the audience's uh, life. So some great really work that, that you've that done. One. That is a, a lot of stories of when I worked for years and years with, with troubled teenagers, uh, kids in residential treatment, and court-ordered placements. Uh, it's just all the best things that I learned from really smart people about working with kids who act out, maybe on the more extreme end. Yeah, I just love your background, Jed. I mean, you were a stand-up comic for many years. I remember in high school when you were just starting out, you came to Mr. Leonard's class, and you were doing some stand-up comedy. Do you remember that? Well, that was in the 1900s, I believe. <laughs> uh, 19-aught two or something no uh yeah there's probably people listening who were not alive yet at, at that time but i started pretty young uh doing stand-up and it turned into after years of doing that i started doing some speaking and i learned that if you're only a little bit funny as a comedian people are kind of disappointed but as a speaker if you're just a little bit funny they're, they're usually pleasantly surprised so it was a much better it was like a layup. It was like moving in for a much closer shot. As you say, the 1900s, you said that as I'm icing my plantar issue on my right foot and I've got ice on my right shoulder. <laughs> oh, man. I know you've been working out. You're inspiring people. That's great. So, But I know what you mean about that was way back when. <laughs> but Jed, is a, as a longtime comic, also a director of a home for troubled teens. And you've uh, worked with a lot of parents, so you have a lot of experience. So, Jed, let's get right into it, um, because you you have a number of different er work areas that you've done and served, and you have a lot of expertise in the areas of emotional intelligence, de-escalation, and preventing anger from turning into violence. Let's start with emotional intelligence. What are some of the keys when it comes to emotional intelligence in working with police departments? as well as with families. Well, I think the real key is just don't be emotionally dumb. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, I don't want people to think that's all they're kidding. It's, it's a term right now. It's a real commonly used kind of a, a hot term that people will, will throw around. 
And to me, all it really means is being intentional about the way that you treat people and being more intentional about our communication so that people receive the messages we want them to receive. And, and generally, it's, you know, we're usually dealing with people that we like or love, but the way we treat them doesn't always match up with that. And what I hope to help people do in relationships, and you do this so well, it's, it's treat the people you love in a way that matches up with, with how you feel about them instead of maybe taking out your bad day or your frustration on one of your kids or someone close to you. Emotional intelligence, I think, starts with self-awareness, and then it really, really gives us a, a base of empathy. Um, when I teach de-escalation, we spend a lot of time, and it's a big part of love and logic for people who are familiar. We spend a lot of time on empathy and learning to be intentional about our empathy so that it's not misconstrued. How do we build empathy? And is that something that men can do? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sometimes for not being as naturally empathetic. I remember working, so I worked at the facility for teen boys. And we started using some of these techniques, especially that I had learned from the Love and Logic guys, who just, they changed my life with their wisdom. And it was going very well. The, the techniques were going well, and the kids' behaviors were improving, and the staff morale was improving. And about two miles away, we had a program for girls. And some people are wondering, two miles apart, is that far enough? Not quite. Uh, once in a while, they would, uh, they would try to uh, reach each other but they moved me over they said the girls program is really struggling why don't you go over there and do some of that stuff over there with the teen girls and I had not really worked with that population before and I knew I was kind of in charge of discipline so I knew I was gonna have some very upset teen girls in my office and so I knew empathy was going to be important so Love and Logic talks about having phrases that you use you know kind of ready to go And in this case, I blew it. So this was my empathy phrase. Dan, you tell me how well this worked. I said to these really upset teen girls, I know just how you feel. (laughs) How did that go? Three words, disaster. Uh, Terrible, terrible. Because when you say that to someone, what are they going to say? No, you don't know how I feel. And, And by the way, that was a lie. I mean, what I was saying was a cliche, and it was also not true. I had no idea what these young ladies had been through. And so a man, this is good news, around that time something kind of sad happened in my life. And a good friend who was a male, all these people came up to try to cheer me up and say kind of happy, trite, cliche things. This one guy said to me, oh man, I can't even imagine. That's got to be so hard. Yeah. So he speculated about my pain. Instead of saying, oh, I know how you feel, which I would have probably resented, just like those girls. He said the truth, which was, I don't know what this is like. I I bet it's hard. And I filed that away, and the next time I had really upset a teen girl in my office, which I think was probably about one day later, I I, I said the truth, which was, oh, that's got to be hard. I don't know what that's like. That must be really, really hard. So it's not, and my my boss at Love Logic used to say this, it's not my ability 
to understand. It's the quest to understand. Really good empathy is I want to rejoice with you when you rejoice or mourn with you when you mourn. I'm not, I don't have to be great at it. It's how sincerely I am trying that I think is really the key with empathy. Yeah, I really like that. And and then, of course, you got to have little deal empathy. In Love and Logic, we're always handing problems back to kids. Yeah. So I, I can't say, you know, if a kid comes up and goes, I can't find my pencil, I'm not going to say, that must be so hard. That must really hurt. I'm not going to say that because it doesn't match. Right. It's, I always think of it like a dial. I need to, to turn the dial to try to match the emotional intensity of the other person. Yeah. And so for that, I would just do little deal empathy, which for me was usually just a noise. I would just go, oh. And then, then in, in Love and Logic, you ask the question, well, what are you going to do? Because if it's a small, affordable problem, I'm not going to solve it for the kid. I'm going to lovingly hand it back so they get some practice solving problems. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. So that's my, my my advice for people with empathy is have a have a big deal empathy in mind and then have a little deal empathy in mind and, and you might get really advanced and get more get some some steps in between there but having a little one and a big one always served me pretty well. So one of the things Jed that's gone on these last three months that we all know about, but as an effect of what's gone on during this pandemic is that the intensity, the dial, has been very high. Uh, you have increased anxiety, increased intensity in terms of conflict among couples. You yes. have increased conflict among moms and dads with their uh, teens. And you have increased alcohol and drug abuse. And uh, just a lot of problems there's been a high level of intensity because people aren't going out people aren't leaving the house because of the shutdown for a while there yes and so they need to learn empathy skills both at low dial and all the way up to high dial absolutely and i think during the uh the time where most people have been kind of shut in a few things happen. One, we probably spend way more time on devices, and we're created to be face-to-face -face beings. We're made that way, I believe, and there's there's research to back that up. Um, I'm a fan of a guy named Bruce Perry, and he said that we're developing a biologically disrespectful lifestyle, meaning our, we're made to be face-to-face -face beings, and that's where empathy is on your face a lot of times. It's not just in the words you use, but it's in your, your facial expression and body language. And people were spending an awful lot of time, and still are, and we understand that's the way the world is, but we, we spend an inordinate amount of time on devices and not enough time looking at each other's faces. And I think that hurts empathy. I think that not having healthy outlets, as you mentioned, if we're all stressed out, and we are, in some cases, we don't have as much access. But I, I, I don't, I don't buy that excuse. At least for myself, I can always exercise somewhere. I can always take some deep breaths and spend some time. I can pray. I can meditate. I can read things that are good for my my soul. Um, but what we tend to go to is those when we're when we're stressed, we go to those things that aren't very healthy. And as you mentioned, um, drug and alcohol and a lot of 
we'll say unhealthy coping skills were on the rise. And then, of course, that's going to spill over into how we treat each other. If I'm feeding myself a lot of unhealthy stuff, that's going to, I'm going to kind of vomit that out on the people around me that I love. Sorry for the gross metaphor. So, uh, yeah, because that's sort of what happens emotionally. We just express uh, just a lot of that negative. Um, But it seems like, you know, your book, Solitude, Finding Peace for the Stressed Out Soul, really gets into um, really turning off those devices, right? And I'm Yeah, a... I mean, I'll save everybody. You don't have to read the book. Um, it says, breathe some air, uh, get off your phone, go outside, look at something beautiful. It's a very simple book. You know, it's not an in-depth uh, I don't think anybody will be too impressed with the psychology. It's very, very simple, but we do try to we try to challenge the reader to actually do it. Uh, we we have some you know little action steps. Go outside, go for a little walk without your phone. Uh, I see people always. I've seen a lot of people out walking lately as as uh, things are opening back up, and I see a lot of people walking and bless their hearts, they're listening to music, and maybe it's really good music, maybe it's really uplifting stuff, but it seems like everybody's got headphones in and they might even be listening to something but also doing something on a screen and i just i live in colorado it's a beautiful place and i'm always thinking let's look around and see this incredible creation around us and there's something there's some science to this uh when we get outside and we get in green spaces and we we view uh, we take in expansive views there are some things that actually happen to our brain. I know that doctors in the UK are actually prescribing hiking and it has to be out away from the, from the city. It has to be away from civilization a little bit, but they're actually, you know, prescribing this to patients. You've got to go and hike somewhere where it's, uh, where it's maybe a little green and there's not a bunch of buildings and traffic. Yeah. You know, I like, uh, I really like that idea. Uh, you know, when it comes to some of these things, I'm a big fan of um, having screen-free zones. So turning off the devices yes. in the bedroom, turning them off at, at dinner time. Dinner uh, table, yes. And then in the car ride. And so there's a time to detach. There's a time to where we need to turn off the devices, see the beauty, connect with nature, take on those expansive views go hiking in the nature and then there's a time when there's the empathy statement is needed from a relational perspective because it helps us to connect how do you know when i mean so so we need to do those things turn off the devices and then there's times when we need to be able to we need to have a conversation that's right that's right yeah I love what you said about the car because that's a place most people are very guilty of getting on their devices. Hopefully not the driver, but everyone else at the car. Um, <laughs> and my, my boss at Love and Logic, Dr. Charles Fay, would say the same thing. He's yeah. that's a time. Wonderful conversations happen in the car. And sometimes it takes a little bit of the pressure. If it's a tough conversation I need to have with my teen, for instance, number one, they're kind of trapped in there with me. <laughs> but number two... 
if they're not on a device, I mean, we, I don't, we don't necessarily have to look right into each other's eyes and add intensity to it, but maybe they feel a little less threatened or a little more comfortable having a, maybe a tougher conversation or just a really fun, informal stuff. I think it's underestimated the power of just being with someone, uh, just spending time in each other's presence that's not focused on anything else, and maybe we don't even have to say a lot. But I did learn a good trick. If I, if I want to start a conversation with my kid, uh, a great love and logic trick that I learned was to start with an apology. So let's say that I want my teen to be more responsible about getting this homework turned in via the Zoom or whatever, you know, all this virtual schooling. I might start and say, hey, I need to apologize to you, and that will get a kid's attention. You're almost guaranteed to hear what? You know, I've been nagging you too much. Um, you know, you're getting pretty you're getting pretty old and pretty mature, and you're getting too big for me to be nagging you, so I was thinking about it. I think this needs to be more your thing, and I need to be nagging you less. What do you think about that? And so now your, uh, your foot is in the door, and if my goal, and here are the intentionality about it. I think the best parents, the best people who work with kids are just very intentional. And I don't mean conniving or manipulative in a bad way, but just there's a real purpose in the things that we're doing. And the purpose in this case, I wanted to hand some of the responsibility, more of it, over to my kid. And then I might start to start mentioning some ideas. You know, how about if I only help you when you ask for help? How would that be? Or how about, and just go through, and this is to your taste in terms of uh, some people have different comfort level helping their kids or nagging their kids. But I'm a big believer in handing them responsibility so that I don't expect them to just grow up one day and be 21 and all of a sudden, they take over everything. It has to be more gradual than that. We learn how to handle freedom and responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so, Jed, emotional intelligence, self-awareness, being intentional, having empathy, you know, which, as you said, is honesty. You know, I can't even imagine made an impact on you. I know that has touched my life. Um, even last year, you... You really showed empathy for me um, uh, when I was going through a situation and, and through the ups and downs. Uh, I know you've been there um, many times. And uh, so, but, but then there's the de-escalation piece. So using your metaphor of the dial, and, and we think about intensity, and intensity might if we use a scale, right, zero to 10, and, and we're talking about one, twos, and threes as low intensity, but then there's sixes, and sevens, and eights uh, in terms of anger. And um, What are some of the key things with regards to de-escalation? Because sometimes things sure. can reach a level of intensity, and now we're sort of past, I don't know, do we, do we get past the empathy stage, do you think? Um, I think, I mean, there's some judgment involved here, but for me, when it gets to these really high numbers, it's often better to not say anything right away. 
a really, really angry person, in some cases at least, needs some space and some time. They still need empathy, but I would say hopefully most of that's going to be on my face. They're going to see that I hurt for them. I'm sad for them. I'm not mad at them. Even if I don't love their behavior during this time when they're really upset, it's still important to lead with empathy, but I don't think it's going to... The people who seem to be the best at this, it's not a lot of words that they're using. They're just conveying it pretty quietly. Uh, so depending on the situation, again, this would depend a lot on the age of the kid, my relationship with them, and what the behavior is. But in general, a really upset person, I like to give them space if I can safely do so. I might say, hey, you know, I'm going to be right over there uh, when you're ready to talk. Seems like you're really upset. If you want to talk, I'm going to be right over there. and I'm going to go sit down and, and give them that space and time. Usually when you give someone space, you're also giving them time. And I like to take away the sense of urgency that that something needs to happen right this minute. We have a tendency. Here's the worst de-escalation phrase of all time, and I've used it many times. Calm down. (laughs) That's got a a, a track record for not working. (laughs) Hundreds and hundreds of years worth of not ever working. Have we ever heard What's anyone calmly say that? What's going on there is that's my that? need. I want this to be over. Yeah. I want to control things. And so I tell the person to calm down. Well, that's, <laughs> that's not going to calm anybody down. <laughs> and, of course, there's a lack of empathy in that statement as well. Yeah, We've yeah, all yeah. done it, though. Right. <laughs> so instead, hey, you seem really upset or something that conveys that I get it. You don't have to be demonstrating how upset you are by breaking anything. I, I see it. By the way, I don't say I get it either. That's not a good empathy statement. Yeah. But, wow, seems like you're really, really hurting right now or you're really upset. And if I can safely do so, again, this would change depending on little kid versus big kid versus close relationship with me versus someone I don't know. But I like to, when possible, give, give some space and time and take away any sense of, I'm going to try to control you right now. Because people will, will fight for control. If they don't feel control, they'll fight pretty hard to get it. Yeah. Yeah. Jed, Does that how, make sense? I hope that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it makes total sense. And, and so you sort of have to give them choices. And now... How about when anger goes very intense? So you need to give them their space. What about when you're in a situation where you can't give them space? Like, let's say you're going to be working a lot with the law with law enforcement, and yeah, you have in my, the past. Yeah, this is my new venture. Which yeah, I was going to a lot of schools and teaching these teachers how to, you know, not get anger flung at them or how to not lose their own cool and do things they would regret. And so now with schools closed, my, fo- my new focus is uh, law enforcement. It's, it's going to be called Mission Peace. We just launched the, uh, the new organization. Nice. I have a team of really smart people who are hoping to just bring more peace you know, to our society in general, but especially the unique challenges that law enforcement face where they get some pretty angry people that they have to deal with. They have to deliver a lot of bad news. And by the way, empathy is your friend when you have to deliver bad news, too. 
If I'm if I'm sad for you or sad with you, it's that empathy can really kind of ease. It, it can make it feel less like I'm the bad guy, and more like whatever just this result. If you're getting a speeding ticket, the ticket's the bad guy. I'm not going to lecture you. I'm not going to show a lot of anger and frustration. I'm just going to be kind of like, oh man, and this is no fun. You know, I'm going to have. That's my overall attitude is just empathy for you because it's no fun to get a yeah. ticket or to get in trouble. Yeah. When we get to the really heavy-duty stuff, obviously, if it gets to a point of violence, then my so my emotional intelligence skills go out the window. Um, if I'm a parent, if you know if kids are really getting violent with their parents, the parents have to do something to get that situation safe, You know, all the way up to... Maybe they do need to call the police, or they have to get out, or they have to call for some other help. Uh, from law enforcement, it, it starts to, when it's escalating to a point of physicality, then their procedures take over. Yeah. What I would teach is everything short of that, because I'm not going to mess with their procedures. That's not my uh, That's not my place. What I hope to do is give them the skills that everything they could possibly do short of uh, anything that's a use of force situation or it might just be someone's being really belligerent and pretty nasty to them and can we win people over even if they're, they start out being pretty awful to us well I've seen this done many many times by people who are masterful at it and I think I've really distilled down what, what some of their tricks are Jed are master negotiators are they who can um, deal with the belligerent and the nasty, even if they have hostage situations? What are some of the tricks that they use to... Is is part of what they use um, empathy building in the middle of well, yeah. um, tense situations? Believe it or not, a, a person who's done something really, really extreme, and I'm trying to negotiate with them, talk them down, get them to be safe and compliant again. I really do want them to like me, but also respect me at the same time. So years ago, one of my very first de-escalation trainings that I put on, it was for social workers. They had a big room and they didn't have very many people coming. So they invited the probation officers and they invited uh, some law enforcement people. And lo and behold, I had a hostage negotiator guy in my training. And I'm talking about de-escalation and I felt like an idiot because thinking this guy's probably forgotten more about de-escalation than I'll ever learn. I got done, and he was the first one to come up to me, and he said, all of that stuff that you were teaching, that's the stuff that that works. That's what I do. It's the stuff I teach, because he, he also taught this stuff. Um, there's kind of two levels, though, and I try to separate out. This is in my training. I try to separate out is the person being proactively aggressive or reactively aggressive. And if they're being proactively aggressive, that's when negotiation skills kick in. Um, if they're if they're in their not smart part of their brain, <laughs> right? Yeah. So limbic system is engaged, and they are not really thinking; they're reacting, and they're flooded with emotion. They're not amygdala hijacked. Yeah. Yeah, the brain's been hijacked by their by their fight or flight system, and we always say. The angrier we get, the dumber we get. Or, you know, the more upset we get, 
the dumber we get. And of course, that's only true for other people, not not ourselves. But <laughs> yeah. So if I've got a wide-eyed, and I'll sometimes separate out into wide-eyed or narrow-eyed. So if someone's eyes are wide, and you can just see, okay, there's no thinking going on. This is a very upset, reactive person. Well, I'm not going to have very much luck uh, being rational, negotiating, talking out solutions with that person. I've got to get that person to a more reasonable state into what what we would call a thinking state. Otherwise, my negotiation is going to be... Uh, you ever see those old Far Side cartoons and the guy's yelling at his dog? Yeah. And he says, Ginger, stay out of the trash, Ginger. I told you, Ginger, don't get in the trash. And then it says what the dog hears. Blah, 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 Ginger. Blah, 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 Ginger. <laughs> it's, it's like the dog only hears its name. Enough, enough. A, a really angry, upset person, if they're escalated to a point where they're in the reactive part of their brain and not the thinking part of their brain, uh, I can't reason with a brain stem. That's uh, yeah. a kind of famous love and logic line. So I only have one goal. If they're so extremely upset that they're not rational, my only goal is to get them back down into a thinking state enough where they can understand that we can actually come to some mutual understanding. Yeah. Now, on the other side of it, if I have a person, and you, you've seen this before, kids will do it. Kids will act out proactively. This is when their eyes are squinty and narrow. They're looking out of the corner of their eye. They're trying to check and see what your reaction is. Yeah. This is proactive aggression. And when I have someone who's being proactively, meaning they're calm, or calmer at least, they're thinking, it's goal-driven, they're up to something. They're trying to accomplish something. Now that person you can negotiate with. So mm. I look at the eyes. That's one of my little tricks for individuals if I see wide eyes, I'm not going to waste a lot of words, and I'm not going to try to do much negotiating until they get calm enough. But if I see narrow eyes, squinty eyes, uh, you'll see like a furrowed brow. I would always joke that if they're rubbing their hands together and plodding like uh, like Mr. Burns from The Simpsons. You know? <laughs> Excellent. If they're up to something. You can tell when kids are up to something, and these the little gears, uh, little boys, you can just see the little gears turning in there. That's a person I can negotiate with, um, and then it's about it's about. And this is what the hostage guy said to me: I figure out what they want. I know what I want. I want you know peace and resolution to this situation. But I figure out what they want, and then I try to frame: Hey, let's figure out a better way to get what you want. So kids used to run away from our center, and we we go talk to them. And when they were calming down enough to talk, I'd say, what's what's going on? What do you want? They'd say, I want out of here. You know, I hate being in this place away from home. And I'd say, that's a perfectly noble thing to want. I would want that too, empathy. Hey, let's figure out a better way to get you that. Because running away, you know, you get caught, they actually make you stay longer. Let's figure out a good way to get you what you want. That's healthy negotiation, as long as it doesn't cross over into what we would call appeasement. You don't really give the hostage taker guy the, the helicopter, right? <laughs> you just you get him to believe that this is going to resolve in a way that, that that's okay and works out for him. Are you? I'm curious, Dan. Are you a good negotiator? Like, say, uh, over a price or something? You like uh, when 
when uh, I was in China and you could negotiate prices and I was trying to yeah. get this blanket or something and I walked away believing, yeah, I really got that guy. And, <laughs> and my friend Tia Chung made it very clear that they wouldn't have sold it if they didn't actually get me. So <laughs> yeah, not so much. I, I had the same thing when I bought a I bought a used car, and I thought, man, I did a really good job. And I walked out, and I saw I turned around, I saw them all high fiving each other. I was like, oh, maybe I didn't go so well. <laughs> a friend of mine just bought a car, and he went in the next day, and he said, man, the the guys were telling me, uh, you had such a great, you got such a great deal. And and then he was telling me how he had such. They were telling him that he had such a great deal, and I was and I was joking with him, saying that he had a PowerPoint presentation that uh, car salesmen were told last week. Make sure you tell every purchaser uh, the next day if you see them come back in. They had such a great deal. <laughs> yeah, we all have that yeah. post malaise or post bias, right? That we somehow negotiated well. We want to think we did well. Bless our hearts. But I think in this in this case, uh, the, the the real key is discerning: is this a person that I, that can even negotiate or not? And I, this is a mistake I'll see parents make. They're trying to still talk and reason with a kid who's not in that thinking state, and uh, we're wasting a lot of oxygen there. And in some cases, we're making it worse because we're adding stimulus to an already escalated person. And one of the real basic principles of de-escalation that I teach is generally we want to reduce stimulus. I don't want to get right in somebody's face and uh, they're seeing that vein pop out of my forehead and I'm adding volume to their their universe of stimulus and I'm breathing my Frito pie breath right in their face. That was a bad choice, you know, for lunch. And, <laughs> Anytime I'm adding stimulus to, let's just say, an upset kid, I'm really sending them in the wrong direction if I want them thinking and making good decisions. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's really good stuff. Hey, Jed, does this fit? I was thinking about when you were talking about having the officer, you know, who who's handing out the ticket when he's delivering bad news. You know, he's he's sad for you, he's sad with you, how empathy, nice. you know, and this is really difficult, I know, as he gives them the ticket. And I was thinking how, for parents, you put parent in this situation, often a parent might change the consequence or not follow through on loss of phone for 24 hours or whatever it is. Um, if you c continue to follow through, um, but incorporate empathy you know i know it's really difficult the bad news is the consequence but we're going to yep. follow through does that make sense that's it i mean really that's that's love and logic uh, we would err on the side of of really following through with the consequence and i mean if if i was taking a phone if i'm advising parents i'm telling them take it for longer um, I'm, I'm telling them to really take it in the first place. I mean, this will make you better than most parents. Most parents will threaten to take the phone away 27 times and never take it. Yeah. But, you know, the kid's abusing the phone, so a logical... You're not taking the phone away because it's the thing they love. You're taking it away because it's a logical result of their abusing the phone. They're, you know, contacting things they shouldn't contact or 
going on sites they shouldn't be on or whatever. So you're sad for them and you say, oh, bad news. You know, we provide this as long as it's not causing a problem. But it caused a problem, so we're going to be hanging on to this. And, of course, I'm rooting for parents. Take it and then keep it longer because you don't want to have to do this over and over again. If you do it, if it's significant, you're upping the odds that you won't have to repeat this. But then it's exactly what you said. If I'm sad for you and I resist my urge, because here's what I want to say. Well, you should listen to me. I told you. You know what? I told you I was going to take it away. You know, listen to me. Now I'm ruining a lot of the value of the consequence. Uh, Jim Fay, my, you know, the, the, the founder of Love and Logic, who's just uh, such a wise man, he would always say, let the consequence do the teaching. And that means I have to shut up, which is hard for me. And I have to probably use fewer words this is another principle i learned from these guys is when i over explain things i can sometimes send an unintentional message that says you're not very bright kid you know i gotta tell you but if i can get away with fewer words and just be sad for you and i've got the phone and you get to have it back when i see being responsible about some of these other things we've talked about then the concept, it's not to say the kid's not going to get mad at me and they're still not going to say, oh, you're mean and be resentful. That can still happen, of course. But I'm sending, just like you said, I'm sending this really strong message without having to say a lot of words. So I think, Jed, let me ask you this. There's, do they have those, those some of those nonverbal facial expressions that you mentioned, like their eyes are big and... They're looking to figure something out, and that's somebody that we can problem solve with, reasonable, you know, reason with. And then there's the other who's not thinking right. Uh, you said the angrier you get, the dumber you get, right? They're they're in their brainstem. I wonder if parents. Um, so so then you, if 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 they've lost it. They, they, you know, like they need that time out. But I think what parents, what I, a lot of parents that I talk to, they often want to know, but how do you de-escalate? So if, if they are flooded, right, they're, they're amygdala hijacked, right? Their ability yeah. to learn, abstract, inhibit, reason, problem solving, their frontal lobe is overwhelmed by their amygdala. But how do we dial that, that intensity back down besides prescribing nature besides timeout, but within the conversation. So for example, you're in a long car ride and you're driving from Florida to Tennessee, or you're in a very difficult situation where you have to make a decision. Say, uh, like you're at school and, um, there's some kind of decision that needs to be made. Um, and sometimes there isn't a chance to go de-escalate and then we'll come back, we'll talk about it uh, tomorrow night at dinner, right? Sometimes sure. we need to figure out how to de-escalate now. How do we dial that down and what are some things that parents can do? Yeah, first I would say, and I'm a fan of delaying things, um, and so sometimes it feels like we can't delay it, but we really can. Um, I noticed I noticed this with EMTs, you know, once in a while we have some serious situation go on on our campus and I saw the EMTs and I noticed they never ran and they kind of never looked panic and we're literally dealing with life and death stuff but they just would walk briskly and it would still be very uh, professional and matter of fact and not too 
emotional themselves. And of course, some of that's repetitions and training. But some of it also is just they realize, well, if I if I kind of lose it or I hurt myself because I come sprinting in, you know, then the, the problem's now worse. And so I would just say first that sometimes it feels urgent and I got to do something right now. And we've kind of been taught that a lot in, in uh, parenting and in education, something that I think can be a myth. That, oh, you got to handle that right now or you're going to lose the teaching moment or you got to handle that right now for, for one, other, one reason or another. And honestly, a lot of times I don't. I can just take a breath and, and, and uh, think, you know, say some, some good uh, mantras and self-talk to myself. The one I use a lot when my kids were really pushing my buttons is I would say, it's not about me. Uh, over and over again in my head, I would just say, it's not about me. It's not about me. Reminding myself that I have a role to take care of this kid emotionally. Yeah. Um, but let's suppose it is. It's one of those instances where there really is urgency, and I've got to, I've got to perform now, right? I've got to use my skills in an intense situation, and this is the stuff that I teach, um, that I'm going to be teaching professionals now. Um, Which is what police officers have to do all the time. Yeah, and there's an element of breathing to it, and I, I'm really a big fan of breathing. And I learned a little trick recently. Most people know that if I'm going to try to stay calm and breathe intentionally, um, that it should be longer on the exhale, right? Most people will do that. You know, say you're taking two two beats in, and then four or six beats to blow that air out. Yeah. The new trick I learned fairly recently is take an extra little breath in. So I'm going to breathe in two, and then in. I'm going to get one more little inhale, like a mini inhale right on the back end of that first inhale. Yeah. And it can sound like a sniff sometimes, but, you know, that's not, as long as you don't sound like you're, like, sniffing, like you think the person has BO. But if it makes an, if it makes a noise at all, it might sound like you just breathe in and you just do a little, little baby sniff, right? And then, then the exhale, and as long as possible. I've watched people do this intentional breathing thing, and they're not saying a word. Super escalated kid right in front of them, right in their face, and they just breathe. And there are these cool, you probably know about these because you know all that doctor talk, but there are these neurons called mirror neurons. Yeah. And our, what, what they really do in our brain is go, hey, what's everybody doing? It's why, like, if somebody yawns in a room, everyone else starts yawning if they see that. Yeah. Or it could be that I'm speaking. That'll happen sometimes as everyone's yawning and it means that I'm up there uh, speaking. Just kidding. <laughs> but uh, the, you can utilize the mirror neurons of this other person that you're trying to help calm down. There's a there's a pacing effect there where you've seen this with, oh, I know you've seen this one. Someone's starting to get louder and the other person gets louder. And then yeah. they get louder and sharper and they start interrupting each other at quicker and quicker intervals and pretty soon it's a... Uh, what is that, a Jerry Springer uh, episode or whatever? <laughs> and now, by the way, that's the, when, when we get angrier, we get dumber, that's known as the Jerry Springer effect, I think. Uh, I just made that up, but I, I think we should call it that. The same pacing, though, can work to our advantage, where I'm intentionally breathing slower, and it's calming me down. And there's a there are, I like coping skills that have a physiological impact and this is why I like your work too, because you're you're aware of the body and mind together. It's not just one or the other. So deep breathing 
has a physiological impact in terms of relaxing our muscles and lowering our uh, blood pressure and reducing the rush of some of those not good stress hormones that are rushing through our body. Yeah. Uh, really, we're actually, when we are calming down, if someone's paying attention to us, we're having a neurochemical mirror effect on them. If we're intentional enough, usually for one to pace the other, the one who's being more intentional will win. Um, so that's one just real quick one is I just breathe and keep myself calm and then what's going on inside my head I like picking something that you already have that you're going to tell yourself over and over again that empowers you that puts you in the right state of mind Yeah. and I know people who use Bible verses I know people who use just little mantras or their own kind of slogan the funniest one I've ever seen was a set of foster parents. They had really volatile kids in their house. Their go-to phrase was, we can do this. So when the kids started throwing stuff around and cussing and screaming, they would just look at each other and they could even mouth the words, we can do this, we can do this. And that was their thing that they practiced, telling themselves over and over again. And they used sticky notes. I love Logic talks about this too. Put your little phrases on sticky notes. Yeah. So the thing is, if you went over to their house, you'd see it on the bathroom mirror and say, we can do this. And then, you know, you see it on the refrigerator. It says, we can do this. And then they took it too far. Um, I remember it was like, it was like on the toilet seat. It said, we can do this. (laughs) What are you guys doing? But basically they wanted to see it everywhere because it activates it in your brain. When you see something all over the place, your brain activates that thing. I'm sure you do this with uh, motivation to work out or people will do it with weight loss. You know, you put reminders everywhere that send the message that you want to reinforce in your brain. Yeah, yeah. And and I think that's that quiet self-talk, that those whisperings uh, that uh, I think are really important and they, they activate yes. uh, who we are in our identity. And, yes. and they reinforce that secure identity and even coming from a place of having a godly identity where if the whisperings are true, if they're honest, if they're good, um, they can strengthen us. Uh, but some of those That's right. quiet thoughts can also reinforce fear, guilt, or shame. And so... So glad you said that because fear is probably the big one that we've got to beat. When I respond poorly to a really upset person or an aggressive person, and the parallels here with with parents, teachers, and law enforcement are are huge. If I perform poorly in any intense situation, a very likely culprit is fear, right? And so... One of the ones I picked, one of the phrases I picked specifically for that reason is that love beats fear. And so I'll say that over and over to myself in my head when it's getting really bad and it's getting really intense. Love beats fear. Love beats fear because I I believe that with all my heart that that love will drive out fear. And fear is often the thing that makes me react really poorly. I can't even tell you how bad, how poorly I've reacted because my response was a fearful response. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, what's really interesting is, and we can learn a lot from officers in 
tight situations um, because they have to deal with a lot of intense situations. Uh, and as parents, we can learn a lot because, um, look, sometimes <laughs> parenting is tough and situations can get intense and they don't stop when they turn 18. I've got a friend who's dealing with a uh, parenting situation right now of his 30-year-old daughter. So, Wow, and yeah, the, the things you can control at that point are pretty minimal. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, the third thing that we're going to talk about, Jed, from emotional intelligence and de-escalation is preventing anger from turning into violence. It seems like a lot of what you have said kind of nips that in the bud. But when anger does happen, and there are valid reasons to get angry, and I think a key aspect of emotional intelligence is being able to teach children to say, I am angry at you, and actually use yes. those words. You know, sometimes we've grown up in families. it's okay to be angry. You're yeah, human. Yeah. A lot of people have grown up in families where anger is bad, where you can't get angry. and uh, But it's being able to use anger in a way that's useful to you where you actually express it in an authentic, honest, and genuine way. But then there's anger, of course, that becomes unhealthy, um, lashing out to emotional abuse, to physical abuse within a relationship, to vi domestic violence, um, violence, uh, you know, towards others that leads to, you know, those kinds of situations with the police department. So, um, in terms of preventing anger from turning into violence, what are some of the key things there that... Uh, you would offer yeah. to yeah I'm, I'm glad you said that too that especially in terms of what we want to teach our kids it's not realistic to teach them don't get angry and this uh this this ancient book of wisdom that i try to follow a lot says in there somewhere in your anger do not sin it doesn't say don't get angry it says when you get angry don't do something stupid <laughs> which is really really good advice for for me as a as a parent um, in terms of preventing violence, and you kind of mentioned this before of maybe the kid is, maybe I got a big kid. Uh, I've worked with, you know, moms that were single moms and they had two sons that were both bigger than them. And this kid starts to get violent. There are times when I've got to just get away. You know, if, if I've got a three-year-old, I'm not going to run away from my three-year-old and teach them that they're more powerful than mom or dad. But if I got to protect myself, that becomes the number one priority. Um, we used to say, you know, if a kid throws something at you, the, uh, the, the preferred technique is duck, right? No, but, but get out of there or somehow remove yourself. If you're the target of violence, your first responsibility is to not get hurt. Lessons and authority and respect and all of these things will come later. But if I'm if I'm really in danger, the first thing I've got to do is protect myself. And that that's, looks very, very different when we're talking about law enforcement. But for, for parents, I need to make sure that no one gets hurt. So there's elements of violence. So you remember when you were a kid, they did fire prevention? 
and I think it was like a triangle. And they said fire needs one of fire needs all of these things to exist. So it needs fuel, heat, and oxygen. Yeah. And if we could take away one of those three things, no fire. And I believe now they've added a fourth element that is like a chemical reaction because there's some some chemical that can that can burn without any uh, oxygen. Anyway, if you take one of those things from violence, hopefully we don't have violence. And those elements, uh, the kind of standard in the de-escalation world is there's a trigger, a target, a weapon, and then a escalation. Uh, very, very rarely do we have people who are just calmly hurting someone. That's always really scary to me because it you know, indicates... So it's a weapon. It's a weapon. Trigger, target, weapon, and escalated human being, (laughs) basically. Now, when you say weapon, could a fist be a weapon? Yes. Uh, Could teeth be a weapon because you're getting bit, which that's happening to me. It's not fun. Uh, So the weapon, if the weapon is. Is the trigger an incident? It's hard to take that away. Jed, is the trigger the incident? The trigger is yes, some some triggering moment that, and some of these are seen and some are unseen. Um, you've dealt with people with with mental health issues. A mentally ill person can get triggered by something that's not even there or not even real, or that is a flashback. If we think about you know post trauma, it can be a flashback to something that happened, yeah, and just something reminiscent, a smell. We used to have a little boy that would, when we went to clean, he would flip out and flip over furniture. And what we found out much later is it was the smell of the cleaning products. He had been abused, and part of the abuse is they used to lock him in a closet. And that closet was cleaning products. So when he smelled cleaning products, he would just lose it. And he was a generally nice and well-behaved kid, but man... And we were idiots at first. We didn't have empathy. We said, don't be lazy. It's just chores. Chores won't hurt you. No empathy. When we finally realized what was going on, we worked with him. And, and while he was working on that, we, he went outside and picked up trash. You know, he didn't, he didn't, we didn't put him through the trigger intentionally once we knew what it was. So especially if we have kids who have been through trauma, I want to be aware of the triggers. I'm never going to be able to take them all away. But I might know some obvious ones. We had kids who say it was the anniversary of a death. Yeah. We knew they were going to have a really tough day on that day. Or, you know, Christmas time or their birthday might be a really tough time for them. So we knew some of the triggers. I also think self-awareness is big here. When kids or people in general become aware of their own triggers, a lot of times it's very helpful. If you've ever had an insight where you go, oh, that's why I do that. That's why I hate that particular TV commercial, or that's why I don't like that food. You know, my parents would tell me a story, and they'd be like, oh, your brother used to do that. I'm like, oh, that's why I hate that. (laughs) Yeah. You know, so sometimes the self-awareness on the part of the person is enough for them to go, okay, I get it, and then they start doing better. Yeah. Uh, That was true for this young man I talked about. As soon as he realized, oh, that's why I flip out when it's cleaning day. He started doing better just just based on that alone. I mean, not that there wasn't another therapy and interventions that we that we implemented. So the trigger is you can't take away all triggers, but you might be able to take away the really obvious ones or the ones you know about. Yeah. 
Yeah. Weapon, I don't want to have obvious things. When we were working with troubled teens, we didn't leave, you know, scissors and stuff laying around. Uh, they poured new uh, gravel for the driveway, and they were going to pour these kind of big rocks. And we're like, no, nah, can we do the little tiny, uh, much smaller <laughs> gravel? Because just we know at some point these kids are going to get mad. They're going to pick up a rock, and I don't want to have a perfect uh, throwing size rock. So weapons are not one we can we can always do much about either. So that leaves us with the escalation of the person, which is de-escalation, which we've been talking about. And then I think the one that is easiest to affect in an acute situation where there's violence, the one that is the easiest for us to remove from the equation is the target. And okay. so that means if a kid is going to hurt another kid, I get the kid who is going to be hurt the heck out of there. If it's me that's the target, can I trade out with someone else? And we'll talk about this with the law enforcement personnel. For whatever reason, this person just is irate with you. Can you tag out with somebody? We used to have code words at the residential treatment center I worked. We'd come up and whisper in somebody's ear, hey, you just won the lottery. You know, They needed to go down and collect your millions. And that was just code for... You are the target right now. It may or may not be your fault. It's maybe the aftershave you're wearing or whatever. Uh, but you're the target, and let's swap you out and see if that will prevent this violence. And it doesn't mean the target wouldn't shift to the new staff member, and I've seen this with teachers. But for sometimes, you've seen this. A person is fixated on someone, and that's who they want to hurt. And we just get the person out of there. That's way easier than calming this person down or all the other yeah. pieces of interventions that we might try. And then the one that's really hard to take away, and as a doctor, you know this too, it's it's yourself. When the target of violence yeah. is oneself, you know, when kids do self-harm, it's hard to take, you can't take away yourself. I mean, that's what, in the olden days when people would go into a street jacket, you know, into a mental institution, that's really what they're doing is they're saying, we're going to not let you hurt yourself. And that's what uh, physical restraints look like in some settings when you're a danger to yourself. Or maybe we put you somewhere where you really just are not going to be able to hurt yourself or we take away your access to those things that you might use to hurt yourself. But usually what you, when you're talking about anger becoming violence, it's usually what, reactive yeah. Right. right. So it's yep. wide eyes and I can and hopefully I can kind of see it coming and I can get the target of that violence out of harm's way. And that's a short term solution. Uh, please, parents, don't hear me say run away from your kids when they're mad and don't demand respect. But that's when we get the situation safe and we can come back and deal with this other stuff later. Yeah. But for the priority in an acute violence situation like that, the priority is safety. Everything else to me goes by the wayside until the situation's safe again. And then we can talk about what the problem was or we can get more into what the trigger was or we can talk about how we don't do that. <laughs> but in the short run, safety. It's all about taking away that target and seeing if we can... Make sure no one gets hurt. This is just great stuff, Jed. Thank you so much. Um, oh, I appreciate it. It's it's all things that I've learned from really smart people. I, I would love to take credit for any of it, but I just learned this from people who were really, really good at, at keeping things safe and keeping situations calm. So one of the things that you're also good at, and 
and I'm I'm hoping to have you back for another interview at some point. Is I'd love to. thank you so much. Is I mean comedy, and so <laughs> and one of the keys that you've talked about here, and you really broke it down and unpacked it for us is building empathy. And I'm wondering if you could speak, and I know this is a a huge topic, but if you could give us a brief um, thought on this, I'm I'm curious how how do you balance uh, humor with empathy? Ah, that's a good that's a good question. I think the main thing with humor for me, and I've had it backfire, um, where I was trying to be funny and I upset a person because they they didn't take it the way that I intended it, or I'm not a super sensitive person. Like people make fun of me. I'm bald and people make fun of that. And I think it's funny. Like I don't get too bent out of shape, but I forget not everyone's like me where, um, I I don't take myself very seriously and I'm pretty, I'm pretty eager to laugh at myself, but not everyone's that way. So I've had a backfire where I think, Oh, this is kind of lighthearted. This person will take it that way. And they didn't take it that way at all. So one of the things that helped me working with kids is I learned I could make fun of myself. That was pretty safe. That was pretty fair game. As a matter of fact, once in a while, I'd pick on myself and make jokes about my own inadequacies, whatever they were. And once in a while, the kids would go, hey, no, don't, you know, don't make fun of yourself like that. They would actually have empathy for me because I was kind of knocking myself, but in a, in a fun way, never in a never in a way where I'm trying to make it sound like, oh, I'm just the worst loser in the world and you should feel sorry for me. It's not that. But just that ability to poke fun at ourselves. You know what's funny about that the is... the fact that we're goofy. I mean, I know yeah. you as a dad. I know you do this. Well, my kids called me Fat Daddy and they did it for months. And a year ago is when it started. And I really was Fat Daddy. And so, but for several months, this went on for six, nine months where I was correcting them saying, listen, we want to be really polite. You know, we don't talk like that and just do a little bit of lecture and and that sort of thing. And then finally I stopped doing that and I started just accepting the reality that I was Fat Daddy and Fat Daddy needed to change. <laughs> well, that's the, that's the, the height of, uh, of, of healthiness, right, is when instead of lashing back out at the person, who maybe says something that, that cuts a little close to home. We, the, the, the humor is supposed to be real high on the, uh, on the levels of, of coping with that. And then uh, even right above that, they say, is self-improvement. My feelings get hurt. The lowest level of, of dealing with that is to lash out and hurt someone else. Yeah. And as you get, you know, more and more healthy, you can laugh about it. And then you get super healthy. You go, well, I'm going to do something about that. Again, within reason, I think your goal of teaching your kids to be respectful is, of course, a wonderful goal. Back to how I would use it, I felt like, you know, if I was driving a pretty junky car, because we didn't make very much money working with troubled teens. It turns out that's not a super lucrative uh, business working for nonprofits, <laughs> and so I could make fun of my junkie car and they think that's really funny and what I tried to never do is make fun of them or something about them or something about their life Yeah. but then once in a while I love it when you and a kid have a thing 
that you it's kind of a thing between the two of you that you laugh about yeah. and i had some kids and, and I, you know there's probably different opinions on this but i would have a kid call me a name or you know it was not, not like a horrific one but there was i remember there was a little boy who uh, again my my head he referred to me as pelota i think um <laughs> You know, basically saying my head was like a cue ball or whatever. And if I wanted to make him laugh, though, I could just like point at my head, you know, and maybe intentionally mispronounce the word. (laughs) And I could make this kid laugh when he was having a hard day or a rough time. And that became our thing. You know, he like that's that's became what he called me. And for right or wrong, that may not be the greatest example, because once again, some people are probably going, hey, that kid needs to be respectful. But more, and he does, but more important, I need to have a rapport and a relationship with this kid where I'm in and he will actually listen to me and take some, take some teaching and guidance about his life from me. I think I watch so many masterful teachers do this where they are able to laugh at themselves and the fact that they're goofy, maybe, you know, they dance with the kids or something and maybe they're not great at it. Uh, Not as great as you and I, at least, right? And the kids laugh because they look silly and their willingness to do that, your willingness to look silly and not be uptight about your uh, yourself, I think that goes a long, long way into making – it lets people's guard down. It lets, it lets their guard down and they go, okay, for whatever reason, I don't feel threatened by this guy because he can laugh at himself. Yeah, that's good. That's that's great. That's a, so yeah. If you're writing jokes, don't write them about the kids' shortcomings. Write them about yours. <laughs> yeah. Um. So Jed, you have we have to close. I think our, our hopefully this isn't too long of an interview for uh, our podcasters. Um. Sometimes uh, we have podcasters that do have one hour long trips. Um. But th- so much great m- meat in here. So much great stuff, and I'm, I'm definitely going to uh, market this interview. Um, but I wanted to give you the last word. I know that you have a GoFundMe, big uh, GoFundMe page going and, and with your new mission piece. Uh, I wanted to give um, listeners an opportunity that might want to support mission peace. So you could, could you talk about that and just take a final word here as we finish sure. up? And, th- and let me just thank you so, so much. much. Yeah. Oh, it Go is ahead. a great pleasure and it's an honor to talk to you. Uh, you are a good man. I really appreciate what you're doing. So this is my new thing. We just started. We just launched it. And that's why there's a GoFundMe. I, it wasn't my idea. Someone made me do it. But it's been neat because people have been very happy to support it so far. Uh, we will soon have a website, maybe even by the time... Uh, putting this up i'll at least give you the link to the gofundme that kind of explains what we're doing but my mission is to try to be a peacemaker it has been heavy on my heart to see the division and all the fighting and all the ugliness and and, uh between you know law enforcement and communities we we want to bring a lot of unity we really want to bring some of these practical skills that we've been talking about uh but we also want to just we want to foster peace. And I think if we're more intentional about that, that we can really do it. My hope is we save some lives here. I hope that we 
help law enforcement and other personnel. We're getting a lot of calls from security teams. Um, there's a security team at a really large church here that's already bringing me in to train their security team because they, they'll get people who wander in and maybe they're homeless or they're mentally ill and they, maybe they're causing some kind of a problem and they want to, they want to be loving toward them, but they also can't let them, you know, uh, you know, break the law or something. And they're trying to handle this delicately. These are the exact skills. So it doesn't have to be law enforcement, but that's going to be my main focus is let's bring some peace between communities. Let's see if we can ease some of this tension and let's help law enforcement who I, I really, really support. And that's why I want to help them be even better at this part of their job. Great. Thank you so much, Jed. This has been just fantastic. This is Dr. Daniel Van Ingen with this week's Parenting Podcast, an interview with Jed Hafer of Mission Peace and in our Parenting Doctors podcast series.